Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. First of all, it's just a beautiful song. I think it's some of the greatest songwriting and then just the energy of it, the the beauty and the melodicism, but also there's so much recklessness and, and energy and electricity. And so it was kind of all that combined, which made me attracted to the guitar and really made me want to play guitar. I even went out and got a, my first guitar was a Stratocaster, it was a black and white Stratocaster. And that was fully because of my love for Jimi Hendrix. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. To define Mary Halverson solely by the term guitarist is to do both her and her art a disservice, as she's unlike any other guitarist currently playing today. Feet held to the fire, jazz guitarist might suffice, but this is also ultimately limiting. Halverson's work is vibrant and alive, agile and electric, fluid and inventive, all of which are particularly in evidence on her latest release, Amaryllis which was put out by Nonesuch in May of 2022. The first song Halverson shows as being formative for her was Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix. So the first tune I picked is Little Wing, 
uh, from Jimi Hendrix, Axis Bold is Love, 1967. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, man, probably everybody chooses Hendrix. Um, should I not choose Hendrix? But then I thought, well, I have to because it, it really is the reason I started playing guitar. And that's something I find extraordinary about Hendrix. I think almost in the same way, in my opinion, that John Coltrane is for the saxophone, where so many generations of guitarists started playing guitar because of Jimi Hendrix. And I, I remember talking to Nels Klein about it because he also started playing guitar because of Jimi Hendrix. And then he, I remember he made fun of me. He was like, yeah, except when I was listening to Jimi Hendrix, he was playing live. And when you heard Jimi Hendrix, it was already classic rock. <laughs> um, so yes, it was classic rock at the time when I heard it. But it actually, you know, it wasn't Axis Bold as Love that I had. I was a kid, maybe 11 years old. Um, and it was my dad's CD. It was some kind of a compilation, like Greatest Hits compilation um, of Hendrix. So it had everything on it, all, all the hits. And, and Little Wing was on it. And I, I really fell in love with with that CD and with all the music. And then from there, I went out and, and got all the CDs but the one that really struck me was the song Little Wing, and it was really the guitar intro uh, to Little Wing, which I thought was just so beautiful and, and so exciting. And that's what made me want to play guitar. I had just quit violin recently. And so I actually got a Jimi Hendrix tablature book. I didn't know anything about guitar, you know, and I, I tried to teach myself uh, that introduction. And so, you know, playing it over and over again and trying to learn it from from the guitar tablature. So that's what I was doing when I was 11. And it was it was really just trying to get an insight into the the mystery that is Jimi Hendrix, which to me, this song is, first of all, is just a beautiful song. I think it's some of the greatest songwriting and then just the energy of it, the the beauty and the melodicism, but also there's so much recklessness and, and energy and electricity. And so it was kind of all that combined, which made me attracted to the guitar and really made me want to play guitar. I even went out and got a, my first guitar was a Stratocaster, the black and white Stratocaster. And that was fully because of my love for Jimi Hendrix. It's interesting. You, you, you fell in love with that. And I can, you know, for a lot of reasons, I can totally see why, but you didn't follow that particular path, right? You didn't, you know, uh, rock out and, you know, set your guitar on fire or anything like that. Um, <laughs> why, why, I mean, this is maybe a goofy question. Why did you, why did you end on, on the path you did? Why did you follow? Maybe Little Wing kind of explains it. Yeah. I mean, I think I might not have set my guitar on fire, but I think I'm still trying to <laughs> in my own way. Um, but I think there is something about Hendrix that to me kind of sums up a lot of what I love about music. I mean, it's, they're beautiful songs. They're, there's a lot of emotion in them. Um, and there's a lot of experimentalism too. There's a lot of stuff going on where it's, it's really exciting and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, but it's within the context of these really beautiful songs. Um, and Little Wing isn't necessarily my favorite uh, Jimi Hendrix composition. It's just the one that that, that grabbed me. So it, it's the one. And again, especially that solo guitar intro. I was like, I want to do that. That seems like kind of 
jumping in at the deep end trying to learn Hendrix tabs when you don't actually play guitar? How, <laughs> how did you how did you do with that? I'm curious. Well, I had a background in music because I played violin for many years and I had had very minimal um, guitar instruction. Like I remember somebody came into my school, which was just a, a public school, Boston suburb, um, and taught everybody how to play a few chords on acoustic guitar. And um, my aunt had left an acoustic guitar at my parents' house, so there was a guitar lying around. Um, so it really was at first just just trying to figure it out on my own because I knew at least the basics of how to hold a guitar and strum a chord, and I, I knew where the what the notes on the <laughs> strings were, and that's about it. So, um, yeah, having that tablature book was actually really helpful um, at the time. Now I don't, I don't, I don't really enjoy guitar tablature now, I, <laughs> but at the time, you know, knowing nothing, it was a, it was a perfect way to just start playing and start learning some music. I had some Beatles tablature books as well. So I was just trying to figure it out. And that was before I had a teacher or anything. Did, did you ever have like teen rock bands or did you, did you pretty much go straight to, to playing more jazz styles? Um, I had a very DIY, uh, I don't even know if you'd call it a band, but two of my girlfriends, maybe when I was 12 or something, we wanted to do an all girl Smashing Pumpkins cover band. So <laughs> I played guitar, my friend played electric bass, and then the other girl was just banging on pots and pans. You know, she didn't have a drum set or anything. I think that lasted about a week. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, the the way I got into jazz from there was that when my parents realized I was serious about guitar, they they asked someone for a recommendation of a teacher. And the teacher who was recommended to them, um, a guy named E.C. Rosen, was a jazz guitarist. And so he started teaching me jazz. I didn't ask to learn jazz. He just started teaching me jazz. And then, you know, it really wasn't love at first listen, but I think the more I learned, the more intrigued I became um, to the point where I, I became completely obsessed with learning jazz. And a lot of my friends in high school, I had a group of friends that were really into jazz as well. And, you know, we'd make pilgrimages to the Newport Jazz Festival every summer and, and try to, you know, share mixtapes and try to digest as much music as possible. Uh, and I have to say, I, sh I should uh, correct myself and the record is uh, that, you know, when I said that, you know, you, you didn't, you know, rock out or set your guitar on fire, you actually, um, you know, make quite a lot of uh, noise sometimes. Uh, you know, I was thinking, that, for example, on the Code Girl <laughs> record, there's some pretty noisy bits. Um, uh, especially for someone who, again, mm -hmm. your your records often get filed in jazz, no matter what they sound like. Um, and um, but that sort of makes me want to ask. I mean, you know, uh, uh, particularly when you picked Little Wing, you know, I saw it on your list. I mean, that's a tune that's associated with Hendrix, of course, but it's also associated associated with Gil Evans. Um, the composer and arranger who did, you know, a whole mm -hmm. album of, uh, of Hendrix music has, you know, pardon me if I missed this, but have you ever thought about going back to that music at some point uh, at this stage of your, your career and your music? Um, you know, it's funny because I've done a bunch of covers over the years. 
And I, it's it, when I do a cover like that, and I actually did cover a Hendrix song once. It was in my duo with Jessica Pavone, um, the violist. We never recorded it, but we did um, Bold as Love. And we performed it a couple times. We did a guitar viola arrangement of it where we also sang. Um, but to me, it doesn't feel like going back to something. It just, it feels very natural. I think, you know, these influences, I think, are, are ever present in what we do. So a, a lot of the various covers I've done just feel like almost something that's a part of you already and just trying to put your own spin on it. Um, so, no, I have no plans to do like a all Hendrix cover record or anything. But but it, it like I said, I did cover a Hendrix song once. So, it you know, it's still there. Very much so. Uh, please bear with me on this one. Uh, you know, he, he does come up a lot on the show. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I think with really good reason, as you, as you pointed out. But, um, you know, we were interviewed once for the uh, 50th show that we did. And uh, the, the person who was talking to us asked who we would want on the show if we could, you know, living or dead, anybody. And I was like, I would like to have Jimi Hendrix on the show, but not young Jimi Hendrix. I want like 80 year old Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, right? Yep. Like the guy who lived and has been through all the different things that he would have gone through had he had he lived. And, um, you know, this is maybe like a 4 a.m. dorm room question a little bit. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, is it even possible to speculate about what he would have gotten up to if he had been able to stick around? I mean, he is one of those people where it's just such a shame that he died so young because I, I do believe he's one of those musicians who would have just kept innovating um, and kept cha- kept changing what he's doing. Um, so I can't speculate where he would be, but I'm I'm quite confident that if, if he had lived longer, he would have just gone in so many different directions that we couldn't have anticipated and probably would have really pushed even farther than he did um, the scope of, of guitar music. The second piece of music Halverson chose as essential to forming her sensibilities was G. Sam G. by Youssef Latif. So this is a track, it's called G Sam G, and it's off a record called Live at Peps by uh, the saxophonist Yusef Latif. And this is a record I first heard when I was in high school, when I was just starting to get into jazz. Um, I would take CDs, I would borrow CDs from the library, and I would just get a bunch of CDs and listen to them. So this was a CD I got from the library, and I brought it home. And... 
this was around the time when CD burners had just come out. So I had this, probably the first model ever CD burner. And I was like, oh, I'm going to burn this CD because I really like it. So I burned it, but the the thing was a piece of garbage. So basically I, I burned a copy of the CD, but it had these weird electronic glitches through the whole thing. You know, and then I had to return the CD to the library at some point. But I kept listening to this version of it that I had burned with all these weird glitches. And I, I sort of became attached to that version of it. Um, it was almost like it was early electronic music or something, or, or almost like a record very subtly skipping through the whole thing. But there was something about it that, that was really beautiful to me. So I'm sure I still have this somewhere. Um, I would have to look for it, but this, this copy of it with all these glitches. Um, but that's a, a long way of saying this song stayed with me and enough so that I listened to it over and over again with all the glitches in it. Um, but what do I love about this song? It's, it's a quintet, right? But it's so bare, like nobody's overplaying. It just, it sets this mood immediately. Um, and it has this almost, the, the time that the bass and drum set up is it, it's in time, but it's totally flexible, almost like, um, mutable and, and spare. And then people take these solos, which are so patient, leaving so much space. What I love too is, um, the pianist, Mike Nock, he's barely comping. He's just adding a couple things and everything he does add is just perfect. Um, and my favorite moment on the song is, uh, the piano solo, when the piano solo enters with this ascending arpeggio and just everybody, it's, it's so still, um, and so focused. And, and again, I think I come back to emotion, which is something I really look for in music, but there's so much emotion in this song. It's also live. Um, and it seems to be in a restaurant or something, you know, you can hear a club restaurant, you can very faintly hear these noises, but even playing in that environment, which as a musician, you know, can be very tough. It's just this, they're completely focused. Um, it's just such a beautiful song. So yeah, this was, I think this is partly what got me interested in jazz and also just the, the focus of, it, it feels very improvisational. Like they're really just searching for something and they're completely in it, the, the whole track and nobody's doing more than they have to. So I'm fascinated by the idea that, that you're you part of your love for this track is inspired by a version of the track that isn't right somehow. It's sort of warped. And um, yeah. was it that different? The, the, the version that that you remember? You know, I'm going to try to find it. If I can find it, I'm going to send it to you. Um. Please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole thing. It's not that different. I mean, the the way I would describe it, it is like a almost like a an old record that that has these slight glitches or skips in it, but it's I don't know why somehow this added to the experience for me. Um and maybe it's because I I tend to like things that are slightly off kilter or maybe it's just nostalgia because I listened to it so many times with these glitches in it. Um, but it, it almost felt like just an ornamentation of the song or, or 
a certain coloring that, that was on it. And because the song is so sparse, these things sort of stood out. You know, it felt like they were interacting with, with the music. I'm I'm curious. I mean, you play with and have or co-lead a lot of bands, uh, a lot of different projects. And I'm wondering, just sort of maybe related to this, it's like uh, sort of what comes first, the the music or the group that you try to assemble to put together? Or does that change depending on the situation? For me, usually the group comes first because I pretty much always write music that's specific to whatever band and, and personnel I'm writing for. So I don't just sit down to write a piece of music w w with no idea who it's for. I almost never do that, actually. So if I'm sitting down to write a piece of music for my sextet, I'm thinking about the instruments and I'm, I'm thinking about those people while, while I'm writing it, um, which is part of what helps me write is is being inspired by the idea of, of their voices. Um, and, you know, occasionally I'll then take the piece and use it for another group or rearrange it or something. But, but the initial inspiration is usually um, for a specific group. And, and most of the music I have, I, you know, I have, I have an octet. I've written all this music specifically for those musicians. I've never played it with another group. I've never tried to adapt it for another group or anything. Um, I've used it a couple of times, like in, in, um, school situations, you know, had, have student groups play it. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I enjoy writing for specific voices and specific musicians. You know, it, it, it uh, occurs to me, you know, one of the first things I noticed when I first heard your music, you know, X number of years ago, um, you know, you described that sort of um, uh, glitch quality and, you know, there's a little bit of that in your own playing, you know, some of the sort of, um, you know, sudden, I, I think of them sort of almost as like switchbacks that I guess you're doing with, uh, you know, uh, tremolo or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, um, you know, I have no idea if that was, you know, comes from that or inspired by that, but it seems like maybe there's a similarity there. Um, sort of little uh, sounds of surprise uh, sprinkled throughout your own playing. Um, and so, you know, if, if that's beholden to that somehow, then at least that makes sense to me. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I it definitely wasn't a conscious thing. Um, but it, it could be part of it. I think there's probably many factors for me. Um, one is that I've, I've just been around so much crazy music. You know, my teachers were Anthony Braxton and Joe Morris, and I always had people encouraging me to try new things and experiment, um, I mean, even back to Hendrix making all kinds of crazy noises on the guitar. Um, so there's that. I think part of it, too, for me is the fun of electric guitar is having pedals and being able to manipulate sounds. Um, 
but I also love the acoustic sound of the guitar. So for me, these these things, they really are like ornamentations or, or accents or just a little bit something you can add to the uh, to the spare quality of just the acoustic guitar. Um, so I like the idea of having this duality where you can have a guitar that sounds pretty acoustic and then sort of manipulate it in these weird ways. Um, so I've always had an affinity for that, and I don't know if it's wholly to do with that song, but the fact that I was drawn to that, sure, or you know, listening to these glitches and stuff, definitely could have had something to do with it, but it wasn't conscious. <laughs> Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, Members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The final piece of music Halverson chose as being crucial to her was Sea Song by Robert Wyatt. and say it's my favorite song. I know that's a big statement to make, but I think more than any other, this song has affected me. I've probably listened to this song more than I've listened to any other song, um, which says a lot because I didn't even hear it until I was in my mid-twenties. Um, but to me, hearing this song, and you know, you have these moments, it's usually when you're a teenager or younger, you hear these moments where you just hear something that's unlike anything you've ever heard. And it just completely changes <laughs> how you hear things and how you think about things um, and inspires you in a way. And you know, the older we get and the more music we hear, those, those kinds of moments happen less and less. It's almost like you know too much, you've heard too much. It's, it's harder to be surprised. Um, and this was one of those moments for me where, you know, I remember it, I was sitting on my living room floor and a friend played it for me. Um, and just really just being completely transfixed. Like, what is this? This is incredible. I've never heard anything like this. And even throughout um, the course of the song, just continually being surprised by what was happening. Um, so yeah, this is Sea Song uh, from Robert Wyatt's 
album Rock Bottom, uh, 1974, I think. Um, and yeah, this album, I, I just think it's so beautiful. Just the moment, first of all, the, the, um, the, I guess it's a, I, I've read a bunch about, you know, I, I'm a Robert Wyatt fanatic. So I've, I've read his biography. I've read all kinds of stuff about him and, and where he was when, during the making of this record. But, um, I guess it was this cheap Riviera keyboard that his wife bought for him, like almost a, almost a toy. He describes it as almost a toy, this small organ with a shimmering vibrato, which you hear a lot in his music. So that kind of sets the mood and then his voice comes in and it's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard and everything, the lyrics, the song. Um, I keep coming back to, it's funny because I don't think my music is necessarily simple, but just the simplicity and, um, everything is there you know you don't it doesn't need all this tricky crazy stuff it's just a beautiful song um and you know this was he did this song shortly after he had started writing this album and then he had an accident and he became paralyzed and he finished writing this album after that had happened so there's a lot of intensity surrounding what he was going through at the time when the song came out and I, i think you can really hear that um so the song goes on and then towards the end, there's this moment where he just, he almost starts like, I don't want to call it scat singing, but he does this vocal improvisation, which again, I remember hearing it and being like, what the hell? Like I was not expecting that at all. Um, so beautiful. And and reading about it, he said it was partly influenced by Indian classical singing and also by horn solos, um, you know, like from Ellington's band and things like that. But he just takes this, really beautiful, spontaneous uh, improvisation, vocal improvisation towards the end of the piece, which is also, um, I, I just love it so much. I, I just think it's such a beautiful song. The whole album is great. Um, you know, and from there, I checked out every record he ever made and went backwards and was checking out The Soft Machine, which I actually wasn't aware of before. This was the first thing I heard of, of Robert Wyatt's. Um, and then to connect it back to Hendrix, the soft machine toured with Jimi Hendrix. Um, so weirdly, um, there's a connection between Robert Wyatt and, and Jimi Hendrix. Um, but yeah, I think more people need to know about Robert Wyatt. And I just think there, there's so much in his music that's, yeah, again, it's, it's always so hard to talk about or describe, but, um, I think it's a perfect piece of music. It, it, I was happy to see it. I'm a big Robert Wyatt fan too and i was happy to see it on (laughs) i was happy to see it on your list um you know and there are just so many layers i mean to the to the album itself um but to that uh piece in particular so many musical layers and so many uh i was trying to describe it to someone once the album and i was like the music sounds like 3 p.m and the lyrics sound like 3 a.m you know because a lot of them are really kind of a little bitter and desperate and, you know, um, angry. Um, and the music often around them sounds a lot sunnier than they are. And it's not always the case. It's, it's not, a, it's not always an angry album or a, or an angry sounding album, but you know, sometimes there are little things where it sounds like, you know, he's got his teeth gritted a little bit. Um, but it is, it's, it's so funny too because I it's I almost had a different impression. I, see, I love stuff like this. I love when you can two people can hear the same 
record and hear it so differently because I actually find the music pretty dark. Um, I I do personally, um, which is something I, I always gravitate towards dark music. I don't know why I always have. Um, but and and the lyrics, yeah, I think throughout the record probably vary. But in the in Sea Song, at least, I, I feel like it's just a really beautiful love song. Um, yeah, it's and again, I, I love this stuff. I love that, you know, people's impressions of, of moods and, and meanings can can be so different from hearing the, the same thing. Well, and, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's sort of serious and funny too there's uh, i think it's, it's the definitely uh, humor what's yeah. the, uh the the comedian who's on i think it's on side two um oh yeah yep uh, i'm not gonna remember the name yeah but it's like there's all sorts of things i think what we're basically trying to impart is that if you haven't heard uh robert wyatt's <laughs> album rock bottom you should go out and um and uh and and fix that right away um, Absolutely. I was reading um, uh, on the internet somewhere that, um, among other things, this inspired you somewhat with your own um, writing of songs, songs with words, that is. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you might uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I, I did my project Code Girl because I had realized at some point that so much of the music I listened to has voice and lyrics and so much of the music I played is not and I thought about that and thought it was a little bit odd and you know what would it be like if I tried to do my own version of that um and Robert Wyatt was definitely a big influence for that um because obviously I love his his voice his songwriting his concept everything um you know and then there were other I mean Elliot Smith too I I'm a huge Elliot Smith fan and I think also, they're just, it's just such brilliant songwriting. Um, Fiona Apple was another inspiration for me. Um, and in fact, if you listen to her latest record, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which if I could have put four things, I might have put this. <laughs> um, but on the first track, um, uh, I Want You to Love Me, at the end of that track, she does a sort of like a vocal improvisation, which almost reminded me of the one that Robert Wyatt did at the end of Seasong. It's very interesting. I, I feel like they're very different, but I almost, maybe it's just because I want to hear it, but I almost hear sort of an affinity there. Um, but yeah, I, I think what I love about all those people is it feels very personal and and very sincere. And um, they all just totally have their own style and their own way of, of doing things. Um, so those were definitely probably the three biggest inspirations to me when I was thinking about writing words and writing songs. I think, you know, it's funny. It's like the the, the Robert Wyatt thing. One of the things that's, um, about that vocal part at the end of Sea Song is it's, um, I mean, I don't know that he felt like he had a lot to lose or anything, but it's so kind of naked and it's so, um, um, that's part of why it's so affecting. And I think mm-hmm. people who, who, you know, people write songs and sing songs so much that you forget sort of how vulnerable it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and that doesn't mean that I don't get annoyed when I'm, you know, in a restaurant or something and someone gets up and sings terrible songs, I guess. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I guess it just, you know, 
it uh, it it makes one think or it makes me think uh, about that process of writing something and making something and then singing it in front of people. And, um, you know, it's it's a daunting prospect, I guess. Absolutely. And I think also the other thing that I admire about Robert Wyatt is he seems to do exactly he makes exactly the music he wants to make. And he's not he to me, he doesn't seem concerned with what are people going to think of this or is this going to sell records he's just it's very honest and it's what he wants to do and and you see this thing where you know yeah that might have been an off-the-wall thing to do in a in a more pop context but it's so genuine and it works and you get the sense that he didn't second guess that I mean again this is me (laughs) speculating but I, I, I like artists that aren't afraid to do something weird even in like a a more mainstream context and Fiona Apple too her records are completely weird and this is like a you know um really like a mainstream in a mainstream type of context not that her music is mainstream but she has mainstream appeal if that makes sense and she's just throwing in all this insane stuff and I love it right well and she can get people to kind of go with her for that because she's Fiona Apple and you know um, she's a famous person, right? And she has mm-hmm. a lot of fans. So, well, if nothing else, again, uh, you should go out. Uh, Mary Halverson and I believe that you should go out and listen to <laughs> Robert Wyatt, starting with Rock Bottom and then, you know, continuing on up through his uh, uh, large disog- discography. And mm-hmm. uh, you will you will enjoy it or you won't, but your life will be richer for it. Right? Absolutely. Okay. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>